This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, growing concerns about the sustainability of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. After this week's budget revealed, it could cost more than $100 billion a year within a decade. That's roughly twice the current defence budget. Also, the UK got its third Prime Minister in seven weeks. We ask whether Rishi Sunak offers much hope for a beleaguered Britain. First up, though. A distressing development in Medibank's cyber attack tonight. Turns out the Medibank cyber hack is worse than we first thought. The personal details of all of the health insurers, 3.9 million customers, in the hands of hackers. It's starting to feel like Australia is besieged by cyber criminals. Up to 9 million past and present Optus customers have been hit by one of the biggest cyber attacks in Australian history. After the catastrophic breach at Optus last month, several other companies have come under attack. The newest target, Australia's largest supermarket chain, Woolworths. 2.2 million customers of MyDeal, a budget online marketplace owned by Woolworths, another half million members of Vino Mofo, an online wine company, and this week at least 4 million customers of the health insurance giant Medibank, all exposed. Ariel Bogle is the ABC's technology reporter. It certainly seemed to escalate this week. So a few weeks ago when Medibank first went public with a potential intrusion on its systems, it thought at the time, or at least it announced publicly, that it thought it kind of locked things down, that perhaps uh, the data of customers had not been affected. And since then, we've learned that a lot of data potentially was actually affected. So Medibank has said that the hacker has provided a sample of data with them, a few samples at this point, which does indicate that personal data from customers and some amount of health claims data. And then further to that, that the hacker did have access to all uh, data across many of its products, AHM, which is its kind of budget offering, the international student offering, and then also all Medibank customers' personal data and significant amounts of health claims data was accessed. Whether or not it was stolen, that remains to be seen. And I also was able to establish with Medibank that some of that data does include the data of people under 18. Well, the attack on Medibank also included a ransom demand. And, and there were some who thought that because of the nature of this breach, because, you know, as you say, it's, it's such sensitive mater- material, medical doc- documents and the like, as well as personal information that could lead to identity theft, it might actually be worth paying the ransom in this case. What's your view on that? It's a really complicated thing, right? So in general, in hostage situations, ransom situations, the government typically advises against paying any ransom. Technically, it's not illegal, is my understanding, but it might be complicated depending on who the actor is because, of course, if this was a hacker linked to a state on which there are sanctions, such as Russia or Iran, there could be some potential illegality there. We really don't know the answer there at present. And then the, the risk is, I suppose, that paying a ransom causes problems for other similar companies because once it's established that there is a market for this kind of content, this kind of stolen data, the kind of reverberations can be serious. But as you said, this is highly personal data about people that we certainly don't want online. So it's a, it's a difficult decision for Medibank to make and I'm sure probably they're in consultation with the government and other agencies about this. 
And this uh, attack on Medibank is just one of a spate of, of attacks. We've seen, obviously, more and more cyber attacks in recent years, but nothing really like what we've seen in the last month or so in terms of the scale and, and the number, certainly that I'm aware of. Do we know if it's random or are there any telltale signs of something more coordinated targeting Australia? It certainly feels like Australia is being targeted right, but it's important to point out there have been much larger attacks um, in other countries. I can think of the Equifax hack in the United States a few years ago, which was hundreds of millions more records than any of the hacks we've had here so far. But, uh, you know, looking and talking to cybersecurity experts in Australia, none of them say there's evidence to point towards some kind of coordinated action. It may be that their media, of course, of which we are a part, is just paying a lot more attention to this issue because of these high-profile data breaches and hacks. So it can feel like this is happening um, on a much bigger scale and In fact, these kinds of data breaches are happening all the time. Mm. There's also been some legal changes in Australia in recent years. So a few years ago, the Notifiable Data Breach Scheme came into effect, which has the effect of forcing companies to go public and notify customers if there's a risk of serious harm as a result of the breach. So there's just much more information about this in the public domain. But it may just be that the... um, sort of hacker ecosystem um, just thinks at the moment that Australia might be a bit of a juicy target given the attention being paid. And so is it? Is Australia more vulnerable than other places? Well, it's hard to say if it's more vulnerable. Certainly there are a lot of companies in Australia that seem to have collected uh, just reams of data about Australians and perhaps are not keeping it in um, the most protected and secure fashion. A lot of people also point out that Australian law often leans towards data collection and not data minimisation. So data minimisation is the idea that we try and get companies to collect only what they need and no more than that. And similarly, that there be a really rigorous scheme around data deletion, getting rid of data when it's no longer needed. So these are two issues that Australian uh, companies uh falling behind on, many would argue, and that the law also allows them to do so. Right. So is the government doing anything to change that? Because we saw this legislation introduced this week to to kind of beef up cyber security. Yeah, that's right. So in the wake of the Optus data breach, the government uh, was quite vocal about the insufficiency, as they saw it, of the fines that could be applied for uh, a serious breach of Australia's privacy law. So at the, t- at the moment, the fine can just be $2.2 million. That can be levelled by the Information Commissioner or at least they can apply to the federal court to have that fine levied. So this week, the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, introduced a proposed bill that would raise those penalties to $50 million for serious or repeated breaches of privacy or three times the value of any benefit obtained through the misuse of information. So if the company's collecting information from people and then using it in a way that they didn't um, get permission to do so, that's one example. Or 30% of a company's domestic turnover in the relevant period. So a really steep uh, increase in fines on the table there. Right, so some, some very steep, hefty fines. But should the government, in your view, be going further than that to protect our data? Yes, absolutely. The government can and should do a lot more. I mean, this has been on the table for a long time. Australia's privacy rules, I think many experts would agree, is very uh, out of date. Um, It was really put together in the era before the internet and before companies were collecting such extreme amounts of data about people and storing it online. 
So uh, this Privacy Act review was initiated under the previous government, but the Attorney General, uh, I believe a report is due to him by the end of the year and perhaps there'll be reforms early next year. There's a lot of people who want a lot of things out of this uh, review, including making it easier, I suppose, for the Information Commissioner to investigate and levy fines against companies. People also want an individual right to sue for privacy introduced. So at the moment, that $50 million fine, if that gets passed, of course, that's a fine and the money goes to the government. But people want to make it easier for individuals to get redress as well. What countries do this really well? Well, I suppose uh, the European Union probably is the gold standard at the moment. Uh, the EU has a sort of new regulatory scheme that the acronym is GDPR. <laughs> We're going to the full um, name of that legislation. It's very long, but they have a lot of new rules, including, interestingly, the right to erasure. So this is the ability for an individual to go to a company and say, delete everything you know about me, including companies like Google. So that's a really interesting development that I think Australia would also be looking at. That's Ariel Bogle, the ABC's technology reporter. Well, the Labor government handed down its first budget in nine years this week. I present the Appropriation Bill Number 1, 2022-23 and the explanatory memorandum. And it made for uncomfortable reading. It recognises that our best defence against uncertainty around the world is responsible economic management here at home. Painting a gloomy picture of low growth, high inflation, rising unemployment and national debt ballooning as far as the eye can see. And so the Treasurer's theme for this budget, in a word, was restraint. It provides cost of living relief which is responsible, not reckless, to make life easier for Australians without adding to inflation. One of the warning lights flashing brightest is around the sustainability of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is now supporting half a million Australians. It's been absolutely transformational for the lives of a number of people who use the NDIS. So having appropriate supports and services can help people do, you know, the things that they want to do in their in their lives, you know, go to work, engage with family, engage in community and all of those sorts of things. The budget forecasts the cost of the program could soar from around $35 billion this year to $100 billion a year within a decade. Treasury says that's largely because many more people are signing up than we expected and they're now needing more expensive services. Professor Helen Dickinson is Director of the Public Service Research Group at UNSW's School of Business in Canberra. There was a study back in 2009 that compared different OECD countries in terms of the life outcomes of people with disability. And Australia came bottom compared to a, a number of other comparable countries. And so when you have poor quality services, you often don't know exactly what the kind of level of need is out there in, in the community. And so there's a lot of young people with autism and those sorts of disorders who've come into the scheme in bigger numbers than have been expected. And they, you know, many of them would have been kind of underserved in the previous kind of system. We've also heard the government talk a lot about waste and mm -hmm. in some cases misappropriation of funds. There is some uh, abuse of the system. There is some waste that can be dealt with. We flagged that. What kind of issues are we talking about and, and how big a problem is it? Well, the numbers that we've seen banded around seem fairly significant. You know, they're in the region of billions per year. And some of this is about not having systems right and some of this is about, you know, 
wherever you have a system like this that's got a large amount of public money, you will get some bad faith actors who will come in and try to do things for their own benefit. So um, some of the systems that are not quite right, things around determining which kind of supports people can buy. So we've still got a system where for relatively low expense technologies or products, people are being asked to get like an occupational therapist or something to do an assessment for them to check that it's the right sort of technology or support. And there's often cases where those assessment processes of paying professionals to do that work is more expensive than the actual piece of equipment itself. So that, you know, doesn't seem like a sensible use of, of that money. The NDIS has a maximum price that you can pay for every different type of of service. Um, And what we're finding is there's a bit of evidence that providers are taking that as the kind of standard price rather than the maximum allowable price. Mm. So we've been talking to people who say, for example, they've booked to go and see a physiotherapist and when they've called up on the phone, they've been quoted one amount. And then when they've turned up in person and been questioned about whether they're on the NDIS and they say that they are, they find that the amount they're actually charged is a lot higher. So there might be some providers who are taking advantage of, of the pricing scheme in in that sort of way. Mm. We're also seeing a blowout in the number of appeals for access to the NDIS. Just explain what's going on there and how big that problem is. Yeah, so if you're not happy with the, um, when you go through a planning process with the NDIS, they give you a plan that tells you which sorts of services and supports you can purchase. Mm. So we're seeing many more people go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And so between 2016 and now, I think there's been a 700% increase in the number of people who are appealing their plan. I mean, it's an incredibly stressful experience for a lot of people doing that. It's very legalistic. Um, Often the people with disability go into those processes without legal representation. But the NDIA spends a lot on external legal firms to to represent them in those review processes. And so over 20 to 2021, we saw a 30% increase in spending on legal firms in those processes. And that was about $17.3 million was spent over that year. So what can be done and what is being done to, to stop the waste and, and the misappropriation of funds? Yeah, there's a number of things being done. And I mean, one that's pretty notable is that the NDIS is supposed to have a review next year. Uh, next year will be the, the 10th year since it started rolling out around the country and, and the minister has brought that forward. That's going to investigate the design, the operation and, and the sustainability of the scheme. Actually, when you talk to a lot of people in the disability community, what they'll often say to you is, well, we know many of the issues and we've been talking about them for quite a while and it'd be nice to see some of those acted on. So my understanding is one of the things that the review will do is look at all the kind of submissions that have gone into various different investigations and committees over the last couple of years to work out where some of those challenges are. But the other thing that probably needs to be thought about is in the last couple of years, what we've seen is that many health and education and other services have kind of pulled out of the disability space a little bit. So they don't do quite the same disability support that they used to do. And that's problematic for, well, at least two reasons. And and one is that, you know, out of the four and a half million Australians who have a disability, 
only about 12% receive funding from the NDIS and the rest of those people still carry on getting services from the range of other mainstream services. But if those services don't support people with disability very well, then the NDIS becomes what's been called the oasis in the desert. So it becomes the only kind of option in terms of getting support. There's a big cliff you end up falling off if you don't manage to get onto the NDIS. You've talked a little bit about people who've had their services reduced, appealing, fighting those decisions. Do you think anything this government could do, considering it's a Labor government, this was the the Labor Party's baby, the NDIS, could anything they do mean tightening up criteria for eligibility or cutting costs in, in, in programs, individual programs for people? I mean, I don't think anything's ever off the table completely. And, you know, we, we have seen some debate recently about things like ADHD and whether it would be appropriate to add that into the scheme. And I think the general feeling is that there are so many areas that are known about in the scheme where there is potential to reduce costs and to get better effectiveness. So I think that would be the place that it would start. But I guess it depends also the degree to which the NDIS becomes a bit of a political football. I mean, I think there's a pretty good plan for now for how to cut some areas um, so that we get better value for that money. That's Professor Helen Dickinson from UNSW's School of Business in Canberra. It wasn't so long ago other democratic nations would look to Australia with bemusement and some concern about how easily we dispensed with prime ministers without any need for an election. Well, their gaze has now fixed firmly on the UK, which this week got its third PM in just seven weeks, its fifth since the Brexit referendum in 2016. I've just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. Rishi Sunak entered Downing Street after a hasty campaign to replace his predecessor, Liz Truss, who managed just 49 days in the job. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. The opposition, Labour, with a U, condemns his appointment and demands a general election. The only time he ran in a competitive election, he got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. (laughs) So why doesn't he put it to the test, let working people have their say and call a general election? Rishi Sunak promises to restore stability and unity in the UK, In the face of a warring Conservative Party and an economic crisis, it won't be easy. Jill Rutter is a senior research fellow at the think tank UK in a changing Europe. So Rishi Sunak is very young. He's uh, the UK's youngest prime minister for a couple of centuries. So uh, he's only 42. He's fantastically rich. His family are fantastically (laughs) rich. Because when he was at Stanford, he met and then married... Ashkata Murti, who is the daughter of the founder of Infosys, one of the big Indian tech giants. So he's the richest prime minister I think we've probably ever had. Uh, so that's attracted quite a lot of attention. And when he ran for leader before, quite a lot of discussions about whether he was too rich to be the British prime minister. 
He's very inexperienced, is the other thing to note. He first entered Parliament in 2015, had his first junior ministerial job in the Ministry of Housing, didn't do that for very long, was sent into the number two job at the Treasury uh, by Boris Johnson when he became Prime Minister in July 2019. But then in February 2020, was accelerated into the job of Chancellor of the Exchequer, so Treasurer, in Australian terms. And he really became known by the public when he fronted up the economic response to the pandemic, and in particular, that massively generous furlough scheme uh, that I think you you call JobKeeper, Mm -hmm. but our equivalent of that. And it catapulted him up the popularity charts. And ever since then, he's been talked about as a potential leadership contender until earlier this year, he ran into a few difficulties, not least over the fact that his wife, who's an Indian citizen, used what we call non-dom status, so non-domicile status, to not pay her taxes Mm. on all her worldwide income, which as you can see is quite (laughs) considerable, in the UK. And he was a bit prickly answering questions about that. Ms. Murti now pays her taxes in the UK, but he showed, I think, quite a lot of it, the fact that he was still a bit sort of, you know, green around the ears in his handling of that. So he's had this meteoric rise all amongst this this crazy turmoil in, in British t- politics. Do you think he's the best choice to restore some stability to the Conservative Party? And, and do things look better for Britain in the short term? So... Obviously, not my decision on whether he's the best choice for the Conservative Party. That's a choice for the Conservative Party. But what does he bring? He's very articulate. Everybody thinks he's very bright. Uh, Although during the Conservative leadership contest in the summer, he was painted as a sort of lefty centrist candidate, which is slightly odd given where the centre of gravity of the Conservative Party is now and possibly tells you more about that than about Rishi Sunak. He actually was a conviction Brexit supporter. So unlike Boris Johnson, who notoriously wrote those two articles about whether to vote leave or remain, and unlike Liz Truss, who campaigned for remain in 2016, Rishi Sunak had always been a convinced Brexit supporter. He's pretty orthodox on the economy. And I think this is one of the really interesting contrasts between Liz Truss, whereas Liz Truss really tried to go hell for leather with a sort of Reaganomics sort of agenda Rishi Sunak is a much more traditional Thatcherite, lionises Nigel Lawson, who was Margaret Thatcher's second chancellor and would describe himself as a fiscal hawk, a fiscal conservative. So that's actually played to his benefit now because the UK, after that disastrous mini budget introduced by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng of unfunded tax cuts, was definitely being looked on with uh, very big sort of question marks by the financial markets. One of the things that the appointment first by Liz Truss of Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor and now Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister has done has been we've seen the evaporation of what was dubbed the moron risk premium (laughs) on government debt. Uh, And uh, the Financial Times has said the moron risk premium has been replaced by the dullness dividend. (laughs) Uh, So in those circumstances, you might say that from the point of view of economic management, there are certainly quite big benefits to the ascent of Rishi Sunak. What we don't really know, because he's quite untried and tested outside economic roles, we don't know very much about his foreign policy. We don't really know how skillful a politician he is going to be in navigating the very choppy waters 
of a really fractious and divided and quite a bit demoralised Conservative Party. Well, this is the, the big question, isn't it, looking forward, uh, you know, in, in the, the medium to longer term for the Conservatives. It's going to be a huge challenge, isn't it, because it's a party in disarray. The economy, yes, all right, the markets have been calmed somewhat, but some huge challenges there. Rishi Sunak's promising this stability and unity. What what are the big priorities and issues going to be for him to, to deliver that in the next few years? So the thing that he's run into immediate trouble over is his decision to reinstate Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. She is the sort of darling of the right, and it seemed that he agreed to put her back in the Cabinet to get the support of her support in the leadership contest over the weekend to stop Boris Johnson running. Um, so that's seen as, you know, maybe his first misstep. But for the rest of it, I mean, the really tricky stuff he's got to do is he's calmed the markets, as you said, bought a stay of execution. But on 17 November now, he and the Chancellor have to set out their spending and taxing plans for the next few years and convince the financial markets that they have a credible plan to get the UK public finances back under control. That's going to be a really big hurdle for Sunak and Hunt to get over. Yeah, it sure will, and and I guess for the for the British people as well, because the UK certainly in terms of its leadership, it seems has turned away from the more hardline, extreme brand of populism. This more of a technocrat, I guess, is is in charge. But when you consider that his answers, as you say, are higher taxes, potentially spending cuts at a very tough time for British people, and as you say, he's fantastically wealthy as well, that all sounds a bit to me like the ingredients you need for a populist uprising. I think it potentially, and people already talking about whether you know we might <laughs> might even now see the comeback again of Nigel Farage if he's bored in presenting TV shows. You know who whose leadership of UKIP led David Cameron to feel he had to promise an in-out referendum on the EU. So I think it's really interesting. Does that happen? Because as you say, Sunak is very vulnerable. One of the big questions is: Can he really empathise at all? with ordinary people uh, who are worried about, you know, higher interest rates, higher rents, and in particular people who are worried about the next pound they have to put in their prepayment meter to heat their homes or turn their turn their cooker on. So it's really difficult if you're that well off. I mean, he himself doesn't come from super rich origins. He comes from sort of comfortable middle class. His dad was a GP. His mother was a pharmacist in Southampton. So, I mean, he's not, he's not royalty in that sense, but I mean, he is always going to be vulnerable. Jill Rutter is a senior research fellow at the think tank UK in a Changing Europe. And that's this week's episode. A gentle reminder from us to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 